Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, I have finally come to the end of James Weldon Johnson's very long, very extensive, and often very interesting autobiography along this way. When I first started this, this, this autobiography, I thought this was the this was the text that was going to really slow me down, but I managed to get through it, and and it's really kind of grown on me. I don't know if it's a work I'll I'll come back to in the short term, but certainly I'll keep it as a reference point. I think it has a lot of interesting things to contribute to the discussion about American empire, um, race relations, American culture, um, the Great Migration, and a lot of themes like that. So. But we're going to come to the we're coming to the end of his coverage of his own life. Again, along the way was written in 1933. Johnson would die a few years later, so it is really at the end of his life. It's it's basically broken up into four parts. The first part covers his early life and his education. The second part covers his time as a teacher and his time as a creator of Arden when he was focusing on working with his brother in New York City on various artistic projects, mostly in the music field. Part three deals with his role in the State Department and particularly his consular work in Latin America and then the growth of American empire in Latin America during those years, Johnson's ambivalence about some of the choices made by by the U.S. government during those years and then finally due to professional reasons his choice to leave the consular service and that's where we we leave off and we enter the last few chapters of Along This Way, which cover the end of his life, really the years 1913 until until 1933. So he covers a lot of period in just a few chapters, but this period of his life corresponds with his political activism, his open political activism, where he joins the NAACP. He becomes a you know leader in that movement. He's very active in the anti-lynching campaigns at the time. He's uh, involved in the protest movements against the the creation and 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 uh, viewings uh, of birth of a nation and just the the different politics of of the civil rights movement in the 1920s so the this part of the book stands out for as a memoir of of I think the sometimes forgotten part of the civil rights movement I I know this isn't true of most people who have really studied black history, but a lot of people who just have a casual understanding of black history, well, they kind of see the 1950s and 60s as the civil rights movement, right? And they, they associate with King and maybe Malcolm X and, and leaders like that. And they really see Brown versus Board of Education or the Montgomery bus boycott as, right, the really start of the civil rights movement. And then, then of course, see the Civil Rights Act of what was it, 65, 64, the one Johnson signed is the pinnacle achievement of that movement. I, you know, if I were to like teach a course in civil rights history, I, I certainly wouldn't start, I would start with Reconstruction. Um, of course, the first Civil Rights Act was passed in the context of Reconstruction. And it never, you know, there never wasn't a civil rights movement um, from the time that slavery ended until until the modern age. So it's it's a it's a longer narrative that needs to be considered, involving many different people: labor unions, lawyers, political activists, writer writers, culture creators, and on and on. So 
you know, I, I think it's important to look at all of these periods in civil rights history and give them some, some you know, some equal focus, not just the, the generation that was ultimately the, the most visibly successful. And I think this is a good source, these 100 pages or so that end his autobiography are a good source into, into this period of history. But where it starts in chapter 28, and if you're just joining us, please go back and listen to my previous episodes or, you know, you can kind of just jump in now if you want. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to just pick up on chapter 28. It's really a question at this point of, for Johnson of what to do. Right. He, he comes back to Jacksonville. He comes back home after leaving the State Department and the Consular Service. And he's with Grace, his, his wife of a few years. Um, she didn't really manage it too well as a diplomatic wife. So she ended up going back to stay with her family for a while. But now she's living with Johnson. They go to Jacksonville. He's got family pressures to stay. Of course, his his father had died earlier and he had previously dealt with that, but there's still other, you know, there's still his mother is around. So, you know, he should stay there. Um, Grace, though, is experiencing race in a much more f fundamental way in the South, something she didn't really experience as much in, in New York City or Washington or the other places she had lived, and certainly not in Latin America the time she was there. So there's a little bit of tension there. And it's just the question for him is really what to do. He could have gotten his old job back as the principal of a Stanton school, but that didn't really seem right for him at the time. So eventually he does decide to return to New York, where he really has had thrived in the past. His goal at the time is to just become a writer, to be a full-time cultural creator. Quote, my sole justification to myself in making the decision to return to New York was that I should have the opportunity to make my way by writing. I had done it once, why couldn't I do it again? At all events, I should be exerting my efforts in a field where the goal was great enough to call upon my energies and enthusiasm. Okay, so what does he do when he goes to New York initially is begins writing for the New York Age. And we're gonna look at some of these editorials in the next episode, and some of them are quite actually fascinating. So he, he basically is an editorial writer for the New York Age of Black newspaper uh, working out of New York. He even returns to Broadway and does some work in, you know, trying to get his foot back into art in Broadway, something he had done back in his 20s when he was with his brother Rosamond. Um, and he does other things. He actually is pretty well known by this point, and he's, he's able to be chummy with other uh, New York intellectuals. We got a nice little vignette here about his meeting with H.L. Mencken, who was uh, one of the editors of Smartset at the time. Quote, Mr. Mencken had made a stronger impression on my mind than any other American than, than writing, and I wanted to know him. As for a reason of going to see him, I took along the one-act play, Manana del Sol, which I translated from the Spanish of Serafin and Joaquin Alvarez Quintero. And, you know, it's just, he. it sounds like Mencken was really interested in black art, uh, the race question, black literature. And he says, quote, okay, this is him citing what Mencken said, quote, he declared that Negro writers in writing about their own race made a mistake when they indulged in pleas for justice and mercy, when they prayed indulgence for shortcomings, when they based their protest against unjust treatment on the Christian or moral or ethical code, when they argued to prove that they were as good as anyone else. What should they do, he said, is to single out the strong points of the race and emphasize them over and over and over, asserting at last in these points that they are better than everyone else. I called to his attention that I have attempted something like that in Autobiography of the Next Colored Man, he was particularly interested in Negro music 
end quote. And it's just it just sounds so much like H.L. Mencken. He, he obviously wasn't making that up. It, it really does sound like the kind of thing Mencken would have would have said. Um, we also get in chapter 28 a little bit more on his opposition to Wilson, his mistrust of Wilson, and his, you know, he had, and this is a growing debate, it seems. It was something that we talked about with Du Bois, too, where the question, you know, black voters started to shift to the Democratic Party, in small numbers at first, but with the Wilson, with the Wilson ticket, and Johnson wasn't buying it. Du Bois you know, didn't really think these votes were earned himself. But there was a beginning of a shifting of the political climate. That, of course, will be achieved much more fundamentally in the New Deal with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's um, kind of new democratic coalition that was formed. But at this time, Johnson is still pretty much a a staunch Republican and pretty loyal to the Republican Party. Now that's going to change too. I don't think there's too much of that shift talked about in the autobiography itself, but in some of the essays he wrote, you see really see that he starts to turn his back a little bit on on the Republican Party as well, and 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 tries to gets beyond that. And that and I think his frustrations as a leader of the NAACP in getting legislation passed, you know, the failure of the anti-lynching bill and things like that, probably certainly played a role in his. His frustration with both political parties. So chapter 29 really talks about his entrance into, into the NAACP. Basically, it, it came because he was invited to a conference hosted by the NAACP, and he will he was eager to go and take part in that. Now, as he puts it, quote, the central purpose of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was nothing more or less than to claim for Negro common equality under the fundamental law of the United States, to insist upon the impartial application of the law, to proclaim that the democracy stultified itself when it barred men from its benefits solely on the grounds of race and color, and yet things relative are as real as things absolute. In part of the country, say, for example, darkest Mississippi, it was and still is actually radical to hark back to the demands made by the barons on King John, insist upon the right of Negroes to enjoy common security of life and property. Um, so, but at this point, he's joining this in 1916. It's still a pretty small group. And, you know, I forget the exact year that Du Bois helped found it. And of course, the NAACP sprung from the Niagara movement which Du Bois was a big part of. But he's presenting it here as still a very, very small uh, movement that he's entering in sort of at the, you know, at the grassroots. And it's at this point where Johnson's own account becomes much more openly political and he starts making claims about equality in ways that he didn't do it before. And I, I think it's actually a very self-conscious autobiography in the sense that he, I think he really does try to present each era of his life as as he experienced it, not how he would like to remember it. So I, I think there's a lot of honesty, and especially when you think of how he, part three, where he's in the midst of this in, imperial machination, something he's going to be very much opposed to later on in Haiti, but he doesn't really reflect on it critically, as, as we might expect. He, he just kind of presents it as how he experienced it at the time. So in this sense, it's a good memoir and in, the, in that he's trying to be honest about how he felt about things. And the fact that, that he's got more, as he got more political in himself, in his own life, the narrative becomes more openly political. The other two major issues talked about in Chapter 29 involve the start of the war and the question of what the war could mean. It, the U.S. hasn't yet entered the war at this point, but... 
you know, the war was on the horizon. And this was going to, of course, have big consequences for Africa and the European empires across the world, um, mostly uh, occupying colored people. But even more important and more central to his mind is lynching. And that lynching is going to be a major theme in the last part of this book and the campaign against lynching in particular. And he, he starts with here in this chapter with the description of, of the St. Louis Massacre, um, where 6,000 blacks were driven from their homes, hundreds killed, uh, one of the major race riots of, of, of the 20th century. And he gives a lot of detail to that. And then, you know, how that event really awakened this anti-lynching movement, which the NAACP took leadership in, in organizing and, and pushing for legislation that would hopefully address address uh, the, 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 the fact of lynching in America. Lynching, of course, had a very long history in the United States, not just used against black people, um, although by the 20th century it was seen primarily as something that afflicted black people, but out in the West um, it would be used for kind of any kind of vigilante justice. And even back to the American Revolution, you know, these mobs in the Stamp Act or whatever who were tarring and feathering people, this was a, almost a type of lynching as well. But it became much more racialized after the Civil War, of course, in the United States, at least. Um, and it became an issue of civil rights. So the NAACP becomes more active in this. And it's at this time, I think it's in 1917, that he becomes active secretary of the NAACP. So pretty quickly, he moves his way up in the ranks and becomes and gets a leadership position in, in the organization. Chapter 30 is more about his cultural activities, his publication of his, his book of poetry, 50 Years. Again, something we're going to look at in, I guess, two episodes from now when we, when we finish up with, with Johnson and look at some of his prose. He's also writing on, on folklore and thinking about folklore and, and, and giving talks and things like that. Um, he attends a socialist meeting, the Intercollegiate Social Society in Long Island, and he, he gave papers there on black culture. So that's, that's mostly what he's reflecting on in this, this chapter. Um, in 1917, he also became, he participated in a kind of a liberal organization called the Civic Club, which uh, Du Bois and Johnson were both invited to become charter members of. So this was supposed to be a kind of a civic organization, a kind of a a gentleman's club almost for I think I don't think it was just for men though but anyways it was a, a group for African-Americans in New York City mostly from the middle class it seemed membership was pretty exclusive the Negro membership increased to 25 or 30 and he served but I, I do think it was interracial this particular group yeah there'd be no bar to membership on account of race or creed so that's that's another interesting development that he was a part of so he's doing a lot of of kind of institutional stuff and going to meetings, giving papers, doing kind of academic work and intellectual work while also rising up in importance within the NAACP. Chapter 31 then returns back to the major pol political dilemmas of the day, particularly the growth of racial violence in the years around the First World War and, and after, and the rise of this newest manifestation of the Ku Klux Klan, right? The, the, the Klan, as you might know, was kind of kind of came and went in American history, right? It started with former Confederate veterans in Reconstruction, and it was really opposition to Reconstruction that motivated that first wave of it. Then you had it 
you had other kinds of racial violence, of course, and we've we've seen examples of that in this series I've done on black writers of the time. But the the organized Klan didn't really take off until the 1920s again, where it was much more of a white middle class institution. The previous manifestation was a lot of Confederate veterans and and more lower class in a lot of its rank and file. The 1920s, as I understand it, manifestation of the Klan was much more middle class um, and actually veered, tried for towards respectability even. At, at the same time, it was engaged in vigilante terrorist violence. So it, it starts to grow and there, he gives different examples of the lynchings that are taking place. So there's a lot of just fleshing out how bad it really was in those years. I, I don't know if in, readers in 1933 had forgotten or weren't aware of just how how much racial violence was at work in the United States in the, in the years around World War One and into the 1920s. He writes a poem called Creation, which is an important poem because it it's going to be a cornerstone of one of his most famous works, God's Trombones. And God's Trombones, we'll talk about when when we get to it in a, in a couple episodes, but that piece was his effort to describe black black sermons, um, you know, kind of as they had the root in slavery in kind of that illiterate culture where religious worship was more of the storytelling, things that were passed on, and in direct opposition to the preaching done by white ministers on the plantation. And then that carries on into the preaching forms in the post-Civil War era, the post-emancipation period. And he just thought this was a, this kind of folk sermon was a really interesting cultural phenomenon. So he tried to record it and document these speeches. So he wrote these poems, which were in essence efforts to recreate the manner of speech and the, the manner of the rhetoric and the types of stories that'd be told in these folk sermons. The first, he, now he'd write these all in about a two-week period, except for creation, which he had written earlier. And so he wrote down this, and he talks about the writing of creation in this, the creation in this chapter as well. Uh, and the last thing we have in chapter 31 is the death of his mother, which, um, so both of his, his, his mom died in 1918. Rosamond arrives for the funeral, and he and Rosamond deal with the family affairs, I guess. So that, that kind of ends his last close tie to Jacksonville. And I don't know if he ever, if he returns from that point on, but he doesn't have the family connections to Jacksonville they had before. Chapter 32 covers events mostly in 1919, particularly um, two things. One is... The, a mass meeting on lynching held in Carnegie Hall, organized by, in part by Johnson, a big event that was trying to raise awareness about lynching and to build up support for the anti-lynching laws and the efforts to get anti-lynching lynching legislation passed. Now, the way these laws were conceived essentially would have made lynching federal crimes, right? That would be investigated by the Bureau of Investigation. And that's the way they, they were, that was the main tool to, to suppress this. It was the same thing done in the Reconstruction years with the, with the Klan, right? Was to have the federal government investigate these and, and bring in the troops, bring in the, the central government to investigate these, these crimes. Um, to kind of to get it out of the hands of state law. 
And that's the cornerstone of these legal efforts. But it's also just raising awareness about lynching and try to build up popular opposition to it and to build up a culture of opposition to, to lynching. So that's what's going on in Carnegie Hall. But, you know, it seems like it's spit in the wind in a way because that same year you have Red Summer, which is 1919's this wave of racial violence, partially inspired by returning black soldiers, emboldened by their experiences in France, not willing to accept um, Jim Crow anymore. The betrayal of the promise of Versailles, of national self-determination was part of that as well. The rise of the Klan, the lynching of, of returning soldiers, returning black soldiers, all of this boiled up into this, this nationwide um, wave of, of racial violence. That's known, uh, was known at the time and, and it's known by historians as Red Summer. And here's a bit of what he writes about it. Quote, a reign of terror followed between two Hundred and three hundred Negroes were hunted down in the fields and swamps to which they fled and shot down like animals. Many of them had no idea of what trouble was about. The two white lawyers barely escaped violence. They fled the state and settled in Detroit. Then, in accordance with common policy, the onus of what had taken place was put on the Negroes. A large number of them were indicted on the charge of conspiracy to massacre the whites and seize the land. A farcical trial lasting three quarters of an hour was held in the courtyard that was filled and surrounded by a mob. The jury after being out five minutes, brought in a verdict that condemned 12 of the Negro farmers to death. 67 others received sentences of life imprisonment and long terms. When they were all actually guilty of was attempted assault on the uh, peonage system, the system by which Negroes in the agricultural South is as effectively robbed of his labor as ever he was under slavery, end quote. And this is just talking about one event in Arkansas. And of course, there were events all across America, North and South. And what's kind of brutal about this account is... The reminder that it wasn't just mob violence, that courts, police, and the, the other institutions of law and order were fully be behind white supremacy and, and actually were engaged in part of the lynching themselves by sentencing people to death for, for, for no other reason. And, you know, this, the current conversation we're, we're trying to have in the United States on mass incarceration, uh, you know, I think you see the same kind of concerns 100 years ago. And remember, 100 years ago isn't that long ago. These events happened less than 100 years ago, and that's not really that long ago. So um, not to mention the kind of the racial violence of, of the 50s and 60s. So this is not ancient history by any stretch of the imagination. And it's, you know, it's it's just part, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's that part of American history that uh, Americans have to come to terms with, certainly. Now, Johnson's bothered by this, uh, not just morally and, and politically, but also just institutionally. It's a problem because NAACP branches are being targeted and suppressed by the Klan and other groups like that in the South. So it's actually hurting membership roles and hurting you know, the, the spread of the movement in the South. That's all. And it, it reminds us that a lot of this racist violence was targeting the most upwardly mobile, the middle class, the, those who gaining a bit of property for themselves, were trying to vote, were asserting their rights. They were the ones who got targeted. It wasn't just random um, people getting getting targeted. Okay, chapter 33 is, it's, it's about Johnson's visit to Haiti. And he talks a little bit about the background of, of the Haitian occupation. It started in 1915, the United States occupied it. Quote, 
for the protection of American lives and American interests and the establishment and maintenance of maternal order. Had all these reasons been well-founded, they would not have constituted justification for the complete seizure of a sovereign state at peace with us. But they were not at all well-founded. American lives were not and had never been in jeopardy in Haiti. And if American business ventures were not as profitable as had been expected, that could not be wholly charged to the Haitian government. End quote. So he thinks this was completely unjustified. And he actually comes out saying it's basically the bankers and the investors who wanted this invasion and got it. This is different than what he said about the Nicaraguan intervention earlier, where he says, yeah, I'm sure banking interests were a part of it, but there was also this security concerns about the canal zone in Panama, and there was these long-term plans to have a canal across Nicaragua. So maybe he thinks that was part of that intervention. But here he, he seems to think it was fully about American commercial interests and the backing of those commercial interests. Um, so eventually, James Johnson goes to Haiti to report on the occupation and re report on the, the Haitian people. Um, it's not quite clear to me reading this why he originally supported Haitian intervention back in 1915, but certainly by 1920, he was fully against it. Um, and so that's what all of this this chapter is about, chapter 33. I, I don't I hesitate to so talk too much about it now because we are going to look at the essay that was a result of that. It's, it's an essay called The Self determining Haiti, which is his essay written in 1920, using the language of Wilsonian rhetoric of national self-determination, saying, why doesn't, you know, Haiti has a right to self-determination. And it's a very good essay that looks at the causes of the intervention, the consequences of it for the Haitian people, and then tries to present the Haitian people as worthy of, of all the rights of, of being a free and independent nation. So we'll look at that essay, I think, next time. But it's a really good one. Chapter 34, uh, it talks really about back really to the issue of lynching and the frustration with the Republicans who came into power after Wilson. Of course, there were three Republican presidents after Woodrow Wilson uh, left office. First Harding, who served for part of a term. Then Coolidge, who finished that term and served one more, I think, and then, then Hoover, who served until 1932. So there were three three elections, one by the Republicans in those years. The, the 20s, the roaring 20s. Um, but in those years, it became clear to Johnson that the Republican Party was not going to support in any serious, a substantial way, black civil rights, at least not in terms of lynching. But they seem to have faith or some belief that they could get something passed, maybe an anti-lynching bill passed through the Republicans. So he describes an NAACP meeting in Atlanta. Um, he, you know, his writing of the Haitian material and his work on, on Haiti. And, but eventually the failure of his meetings with President Harding on both the issue of Haiti where he tries to urge Harding to change American policy towards Haiti, and and the meet and they had meetings on lynching as well, where he tried to convince Harding to fully support and back and get the Republican Party to back a strong anti-lynching act. Well, let's just look at this dire anti-lynching bill. This is the main bill that was um, put forward. It was originally introduced in. In 1918, by a Republican um, in the House, and eventually it would pass the House, but it wouldn't pass the Senate. Um, and here's what the the lost the the bills called for: 
One, a maximum of five years in prison, $5,000 fine, are both for any state or city official who had the power to protect a person but failed to do so. Because that was a big issue in lynching, right? With that, you know, sheriffs would just kind of look the other way when mobs would, would you know, take over a jail cell. So it, it forces them to defend these prisoners. B, a minimum of five years in prison for anyone who participated in a lynching, whether they were an ordinary citizen or an official representative for keeping the victim safe. So, you know, those big mobs of people, everyone would be subject to criminal penalties. And C, uh, a $10,000 fine to be paid by the county in which the lynching took place to be turned over to the victim's family. And in addition, if officers failed to protect all citizens, they could be prosecuted in federal court. And then all of this is federal crime. So it becomes a federal felony investigated by the Bureau of Investigation. So that so state law is trumped in this bill. So that's what it tried to do. But Harding was very, very lukewarm on both his pleas to change policy towards Haiti and to support the lynching bill. So he comes out of this very, very frustrated. Now, how long did this occupation of Haiti last? Well, it was from 1915 to 1934. It, it would not be until well into the Great Depression that the United States would end, end this occupation. So it wasn't a, a short-term thing. It wasn't like a one-year thing, like what happened in Nicaragua uh, that Johnson was involved with. This was like a permanent, like it conceived of as almost a permanent presence, almost like what you had in Cuba in, in a later period. Um, so chapter 35 continues with the, the frustration over the lynching issue and the failure of the dire anti-lynching bill. It does get passed, of course, by the House of Representatives. And, and then it's really in the debate in the Senate where Johnson tries to push the, the Senate to support the bill. And he actually gives a statement to the committee, which is, um, yeah, part of it is is reproduced here quote the analogy this is what he said to senate the senate quote the analogy between murder and lynching is not a true one lynching is murder but it's also more than murder in murder one or more individuals takes life generally for some personal reason in a lynching a mob sets upon sets itself upon in a place of the state and acts in place of the due process of law to met out death as a punishment to a person accused of a crime it is not against the act of killing that the federal government seeks to exercise its power through the proposed law but against the act of the mob in arrogating its to itself the functions of the state and substituting its actions for the due process of law guaranteed by the Constitution to every person accused of a crime. End quote. So essentially, it's the it's the federal government's duty to do this under the 14th Amendment. So um, it seems that was the main opposition in the center, the way non-sympathetic senators justified not supporting this law was to say, well, you're basically getting the federal government involved in what's nothing more than a murder and murder is state law. It's, it shouldn't be. And he's trying to say it's actually it's much more than murder. It's a really different, different act altogether. Um, so anyways, it fails in the Senate. Then chapter 36. Um, yeah, I think chapter 36 is much more about his well, it's a, but a variety of things here. He talks about, it's a very long chapter too. He talks about the Harlem Renaissance. He talks about his return to creative work. He, he put together this very interesting anthology of black poetry. We'll, we'll read the introduction to that. I don't have the whole anthology. It doesn't seem very long. It seems he was fairly selective what he chose. He wins some cultural awards. But essentially, despite him putting getting his feet wet in literature, 
And in writing, he's by and large focusing on NAACP. He doesn't really have the time for lit. He's got uh, the Ocean Sweet case in Detroit in 1925, which is a very, very important civil rights case. And again, I'll just jump to Wikipedia. So if you don't know this case, Ocean Sweet was an American physician in Detroit, Michigan, known for being charged with murder in 1925 after he and his friends used armed self-defense against a hostile white crowd protesting his moving into, quote-unquote, their neighborhood. Stones were thrown at the house, breaking windows, shots were fired, and one white man was killed and another wounded. In the first jury, first trial, the jury could not agree on several verdicts, on verdicts for several defendants. After a mistrial, the decision was made to sever the trial to the, to the defend, of the defendants. Um, anyways, these were big national events. Um, you know, the NAACP even hired Clarence Darrow to, to, um, to defend these people. But, you know, it's about the beginning of the urban crisis, actually, the, the, you know, the growth of, of segregation in northern cities in the years after the Great Migration, uh, white flight to the suburbs and then uh, white people putting up barriers around their suburban communities to keep black people out. And then that tied with redlining and those banking policies that made it much more difficult for black people to get homes, get mortgages and things like that. So, you know, that this case, the Osayan Sweet case is actually tied into that. And um, of course the great book on the urban crisis is about Detroit. So it's, it's significant that, that this case took place there, I think. Um, he gets involved in free speech um, fights. He, he also recounts Dee's death. You know, if you don't remember, Dee is the figure that inspired, in some ways, Johnson's portrayal of the ex-colored man in that book, a very light-skinned man who married a white woman. His name was Wetmore, and he, he dies. And he, this was a childhood friend who died, so of course it had a lot of, it was a personal blow to, to Johnson. Um, Quote, death has grieved me more deeply, but never has it been more terribly, sh more terribly shocked me, is what he said about Dee's, Dee's death. Um, he does mention that in the election of 1928, this would have been the Hoover election, Hoover running. He really starts to lose faith in the Republican Party as, as being the party of Lincoln, the party that black people could trust. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with the failure of the dire anti-lynching law. And, and policy in Haiti. Chapter 37 describes a trip he takes to Japan and his, his, begin, his efforts to think about and understand the Far Eastern question as he understood it, something he conceives, conceives of in partially racial terms. As a girl, you know, and of course, the history of the 20th century in the Pacific would be you know, the, the fight, the battle between Japan and the United States who would dominate it, at least the first half of the century, of course. And it may be very well that this, this first half of the 21st century will be about who's going to dominate the Pacific. Will it be China or will it be the United States? And the piece is already being put into play for that conflict or that, that struggle. But he goes to this conference in Japan and he just, it's something he didn't know much about, but he seems really curious and interested. And he starts to see correlations between his own experiences and, and political struggles and what was being discussed in Japan. Quote, I was tremendously interested in the conference and learned things about the Far Eastern question that had hitherto rested in that zone of hazy ideas which surrounds everyone's definite knowledge. I contributed as much as I was able to 
contribute to the roundtable discussion. Out of it all, the truth that came home to me most directly was of the universality about race and the color problem. Negroes in the United States are prone and natural to believe that their problem is the problem. In fact, there is a race and color problem wherever white men deals with the darker races. The things unique about the Negro problems in the United States, a uniqueness that has its advantages and disadvantages, is that everywhere the problem results from a presence of the white man in the midst of a darker civilization, and in the United States from the presence of the Negroes in the midst of white civilization." End quote. Now what's interesting about this is this is the same ideas that are going through Du Bois's mind at the same time. If you remember our, my coverage of the du Bois, du Bois volume, he's having that same realization. He gets there a little bit earlier, I think, than Johnson, but not by much, that these are really global questions uh, dealing with empire. It's not just white supremacy in the United States. There's a, a global story of white supremacy propped up by empire affecting colored people all across the world. So, you know, that Du Bois and Johnson get to the same place. Of course, Du Bois writes much more about it than Johnson does. It makes it much more of his his legacy to engage in this debate. But Johnson, you know, he knows it as well. At this conference, he actually met Rockefeller and eventually took a tour back to, to Hawaii and, and saw the sights on his way home. Um, and then chapter 38, the final chapter of, of the autobiography, covers the final years of his life his final publications, at least at the time, he would write this, of course, along the way. But he talks about his writing of Black Manhattan, which is the book we're going to look at part of it, which is his his account of the Great Migration and the cultural explosion that took place in the aftermath of the Great Migration in in New York City. He actually starts the account, apparently, with, with 1626, with the formation of Harlem way back in the 17th century. And then in the last few pages, he, he deals with the question of long-term progress for black Americans. And he, he seems to believe economic factors will kind of will eventually wear down a lot of racial inequalities. Quote, I believe that economic factors will work towards the abolition, aboli, abolishment of many of the inequalities and discriminations in the South. That section, the poorest in the country, must yield to pressure against the policy of maintaining a dual educational system, a dual railway system, a dual park system, and draining duplications in so many economic and civic enterprises. The absurdity of a man going into business and the one start borrowing the patronage of one third to one half of the community must eventually counterbalance all the prejudices. End quote. I don't know. I think he's a bit too optimistic there, to be honest. It, I, that's not really how it worked out. Um, even when economic fortunes increased in the South, Jim Crow only deepened, right? Jim Crow didn't fall because it was faltering due to its internal contradictions. It was well entrenched in the 50s and 60s. It took force and it took a struggle to break it down. So I think he's he's a bit too hopeful here. And I think history backs that out. But um, he does have this this um, view. And partially here he's answering the communists. And he does address the question, will black people move to communism? Now, in 1933... The Communist Party is growing in popularity among black Americans. You have the, the black sharecroppers unions, which were partially organized by communists. If you want to know more about them, you, you need to read Robin Kelly's wonderful book, Hammer and Ho, uh, which deals with uh, communists organizing black Americans in the South in the, in the 1930s. Race Rebels, his other book, also talks a little bit about this. Of course, many of them would later on participate in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and, and, and become involved in the anti-fascist struggle in Spain. Uh, 
but he just doesn't have much belief that communism can offer much to to black americans so he's skeptical about the communists and what they can do he just doesn't think that's a, a, a adequate path forward and that that's kind of it he you know and then he just sort of ends ends the book with a brief conclusion which to be honest i found full of platitudes you know that might inspire some people but didn't do much for me so it, I, it, I, I wasn't that pleased with, with the ending. Well, I'll just give you a taste of it. Man's sufferings, his joys, his aspirations, his defeats are just as real and as a great a moment to him as they would be if they were part of a mighty and definite cosmic plan. The human mind rakes itself over the never-to-know answer of the great riddle, and all that is closely related is that fate, is that fate that man must continue to hope and struggle on, that each day, if you would not be lost he must with renewed courage take a fresh hold on life and face with fortitude the turns of circumstance ah anyways it, it, it that doesn't do much for me that kind of writing but you know it's it's kind of optimistic i suppose um so that does it for along the way uh yeah how to summarize this i it, it's hard it's a it's, first of all it's a really long autobiography uh, it, it'll take a while to get through it it can be skimmed from time to time, but there's so many great moments. It's risky to do it. Um, I, I did as best I could to read every word of it. Um, so I think it's a slow to get into unless you really like educational memoirs. But I think in parts two, three, four, it really becomes interesting. And the only complaint is maybe it's a little bit too detailed. And he does spend a lot of time in minutia events. And But I think what's really a strength of this is that he really does do a good job of relating these events as he experienced them and felt about them at the time so its theme and its focus changes and you really see the growth of this character so and i think in a lot of autobiographies there's you know this it, it's hard to look at your previous self except through your current eyes right and i think johnson does a good job of, of actually understanding the changes in perspective and focus and and passions that he that he has at various stages in his life. So I think that's kind of a, a really to its strength as an autobiography. Um, thematically, it just, it runs the gamut from art, art and culture, writing, diplomacy, the social history of the diplomatic work, American empire in Haiti and Nicaragua and Venezuela, uh, the rise of the NAACP, lynching, the struggle against lynching, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, education, the the relationship between college-educated black people and an education service, something Du Bois pushed, but Johnson had some regrets about. And, you know, there's just so many different themes here that, you know, it, I'd be, it'd be difficult to summarize. And I've been talking about this book for so long by this point. I, I think I, it's time to set it aside and, and prepare my comments on the last two sections of, of this collection. So what we're going to have is Actually, I think it's three sections. It's it's a section of his essays, including a lot of his prefaces to books. It's his New York Age editorials, which are fascinating, and then his prose work, particularly 50 Years and God's Trombones and a few other assorted prose works. So I, I'm just going, it's about 250 pages left in the volume. I'm just going to break it up into two episodes. So we'll, we'll look at his New York Age editorials and some essays next time, and then we'll finish up with a few other essays and then his and focus on really God's trombones and in 50 years and his other poetry. 
Um, so, uh, but that does it for Along the Way. Uh, a good autobiography, certainly worth checking out. Um, so that does it. Uh, again, thanks for, for listening. If, if you have read Along the Way, you know, please share your opinions of it and your feelings about it. And, you know, point out anything I missed or anything I, I neglected or any historical facts I, I, got, I got wrong or I, I misrepresented or misstated. So, uh, as always, I really appreciate you listening and sharing this kind of adventure through American writing with me. I'm really enjoying doing it. So, I, I hope to hear from you. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And as... You know, we're, as I'm coming to the end of this series on, on turn of the century black writers, interestingly, I actually conceived of it, you know, in Black History Month back in February, and you know, just this is such a slow process. You know, I'm all these episodes won't be up till till well into the summer. So, but I'm coming to the end of this series on 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 black writers, and I don't know when I'm going to come back to to black writers. I, I have some. Um, certainly, there's Baldwin and Richard Wright. And, and Zora Neale Hurston and, and that's like seven volumes those three writers together so I may I may take them all in a chunk at some point in the future um, but I don't own those volumes currently oh, I have this, the Hurston novel the books but I don't have the Richard Wright and the Baldwin ones so that that's certainly in the future there's there's some other black writings I could look at too like slave narratives Douglas I don't think I have Frederick Douglass's account, um, but I think that comes close to, there's a few others, I think, in the collection, but that's, that's, yeah, uh, Brown is his name, the abolitionist. Anyways, I, I'm not going to try to remember all of them, but there is more black writing to look at um, in future episodes, but it's going to be a while before I get back to it because I've got a lot of other American writing to, to look at in the meantime as well. And I want to spread things out and, and move to different periods of history and different periods of um, time. So I don't quite know where I'm going though, um, but I'll go somewhere. Um, but so thank you for, for helping me appreciate and, and read these, these black writers because it's, um, I've learned a lot by doing it. So again, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time as we continue on our, our journey through the works of James Weldon Johnson. Oh